Upon the occurrence of the 20th anniversary of Christ on Infinite Earths, the maxi-series that reinvigorated and redefined DC Comics in modern times, a direct sequel was concocted called Infinite Crisis. DC was in a much more stable place commercially and creatively in 2006 than they had been in 1986, so there were no actual sweeping changes or massive obliterations of their library desired or expected. But invoking the name of such a significant work in superhero fiction behooved DC to at least fabricate some drama and jack around some properties with name recognition to foster the illusion of an event. One aspect was to contrive a rationale to jump the entire line's continuity ahead and create a mystery around how their characters had gone from their familiar selves at the end of Infinite Crisis to new circumstances one year later. Being a shapeshifter and a well-liked commercial dud, Martian Manhunter was an easy target for a wild redesign and a move toward angry outsider who'd put distance from his decades-long birth in the Justice League titles. His solo miniseries and revisions were not well-received. A year-long weekly finite series called 52 was meant to explain John Jones's transformation, but it was instead dumped into a four-issue spin-off miniseries that ran around the same time as the monthly solo miniseries that had spun out of Invent Crisis was ending. 52 was immediately followed by Countdown, which DC Vice President Dan Didio was apocryphally said to have declared to be 52 done right, as that had strayed from his vision of the maxi-series. While 52 was a well-regarded hit, Countdown was pilloried and sales were not comparable. The book was counting down to another crisis event, and John Jones made sporadic appearances in that title and its satellite book. As it turned out, the event was Final Crisis, and within two years of being tarted up to sell the ramifications of Infinite Crisis, the Marshman Herd would be cynically executed at the beginning of the next event to raise its stakes. Didio's 17-year tenure at DC is filled with these repeating motifs, often applied to the same characters over and over again. The Amazons of Themyscira, who had faced annihilation from an army of Omax in Infinite Crisis, threatened others with annihilation ahead of Final Crisis. Jean served as a glorified cell phone in a few panels of the Amazons Attack miniseries, at least for his cameo in Catwoman number 70, he was dispatched to stop an Amazonian terrorist captured by Selina Kyle from killing herself before information could be extracted from her. The appearance was likely intended to foreshadow his and Catwoman's joining a new team of outsiders, but then those plans were scrapped so late that house ads featuring the two of them on the team were already running, and the completed issues of the series were never printed. Replacement issues were rapidly commissioned, and replacement team members were rapidly inserted. In the Checkmate series that spun out of Infinite Crisis, it was revealed that the Manhunter was often impersonating Black King Talib Benny Khalid to lure White Queen Amanda Waller into a trap. The wall had continued to act primarily in the interest of the U.S. government in direct opposition to her oaths to the United Nations organization, and it also violated a rule governing the number of metahumans allowed in the operation by injecting OMAC nanites into her bloodstream. Where Waller had thought the Manhunter impersonations would drive out the Black King, they instead placed her in a position to have a resignation extorted out of her. The Manhunter also helped in the investigation of her Salvation Run project, in which Task Force X was illegally capturing and deporting superhumans to a hostile alien world. In Countdown, the Manhunter was shown attending the funeral of Bart Allen, who had been temporarily aged to adulthood to assume the role of the Flash, only to be murdered by a prior incarnation's rogues. In the Green Arrow Black Canary wedding special, he claimed to have seen this outcome from the moment they met. It was an attendance for their nuptials. In Just League of America wedding special number one, he attended Oliver Queen's bachelor party at the Hall of Justice. He was seen rapping with Beast Boy, who was so excited that he covered his mouth with both hands. I'd be interested to know more about that, though I suspect from later seeing the former changeling wiping his mouth with the back of his hand that it might have just been booze. During the shindig, Lex Luthor, Cheetah, and Joker continued amassing a supervillainous army at their Hall of Doom. Martian Manhunter foes in attendance included Gorilla Grodd, Effigy, and Dr. Light. 
Despero, Black Adam, and Mongol all showed up on a wraparound cover for Justice League of America number 13, which was also turned into a poster, but that trio were absent from the actual story. The Alien Atlas participated in the Sinestro Corps War and was seen punching a robot from the Manhunter Corps. He also joined a host of heroes in a rematch against Superboy Prime after his three killing of heroes in Infinite Crisis. The Martian Marvel was one of the main point men in the struggle and detected that Prime was not yet at full strength after escaping confinement on Oa. It was during the Sinestro conflict that a then-unknown entity caused the first story of a new horrific light core to rise. A large and mysterious Black Lantern central battery rose around the corpse of the Anti-Monitor on the planet Rivet, a world once decimated by the Guardian's Manhunter core. Its ultimate purpose and its creator were unknown. Miss Martian had also fought Sinestro's core, while Jean Jones turned up in her book for a few issues of Teen Titans. He'd been investigating a murder in Vancouver when he was ambushed by evil Titans from the future and joined several other powerful Titans mentors in temporary imprisonment. In another rematch involving the center of a recent superhero match, Massacre, Martian Manhunter and many other champions made sporadic appearances in the miniseries Black Adam, The Dark Age by Peter J. Tomasi, Doug Monkey, and Christian Alami. After having been shot in human form by a Black Ops team, Adam dreamt he was being dismembered by Dr. Savannah, Captain Marvel, Osiris, and Isis, while members of the JLA and JSA, including both the classic and cone-headed Martian Manhunter, looked on. Afterwards, Conehead Hunter offered a smile and a golf clap. Adam woke up, called down the lightning, and slaughtered his pursuers. Thanks to a spell cast by Felix Faust, Black Adam was able to temporarily siphon the residual magic he'd bestowed upon Isis from her bones, but his human form remained vulnerable. Black Adam forced workers at a veterinary clinic to tend to his wounds, donating their own blood to mix with his agreeable A-positive type to ensure he wouldn't someday go after their families. After Adam departed, the Black Ops team arrived at the clinic, having tracked the radioactive bullets the vets had dislodged. Black Adam returned to repay his debt to the vets and kill all the operatives, though not before an interrogation. Adam learned the JSA had developed a means to track his lightning via satellite. A group of investigators, including Martian Manhunter, Superman, Wildcat, Batman, and Dr. Midnight, showed up at the vet clinic too late, as Black Adam had left for space and destroyed the JSA satellite. After collecting the last piece of an amulet meant to restore Isis to life, Black Adam waded through yet more Black Ops troopers, painting the Arctic ice red with her blood. While gloating at the massacre, Black Adam was shot by one of the wounded with an eternity bullet, which could penetrate even the flesh of a quote-unquote god. To evade helicopters and deal with his injury, Black Adam dove into the frigid waters, removed the bullet with his bare hands, fed it to a seal, and escaped the scene. Meanwhile, a cooperative of the Justice Society of America and the Justice League of America, featuring Martian Manhunter yet again, could not detect Black Adam, but accepted the arrest of the Black operatives as the consolation prize. This final setback caused the operations financiers to give up their pursuit. While wandering the streets of Fawcett City, Death Adam continued reciting whatever words he encountered in hopes of stumbling upon the magic word denied him by Captain Marvel. Stopping at Frank Soda Fountain, Death Adam ordered what a young patron was having, one of these chocolate egg creams. Suddenly, the mystical light of ancient Egyptian gods struck Teth Adam, restoring Black Adam to his full grandeur. Ah, Billy, always the boy. In Salem, Massachusetts, Felix Faust had taken up residence in the Tower of Fate while casting a spell over Isis's remains. All the fine details were worked out, but Isis could not be resurrected. Black Adam was furious, but Faust explained that Isis remained dead because Adam had exhausted the magic within her bones with the abuse of his powers over the course of the miniseries. Black Adam left Faust trapped in the tower, after having been tricked into believing Isis's spirit had possessed Faust in order to condemn Black Adam's failure. In truth, the bones Faust briefly reanimated were Ralph Dibney's. 
Faust resurrected Isis's body, though she seemed a bit of a mindless drone, and used her power to escape Fate's Tower. Black Adam went to live in the Kondok Embassy under Gotham City, so he could moan and slam his face into walls. Coming in so late, I had a difficult time figuring out exactly what was going on. Once I did, I realized it was much ado about nothing. There are quite a few near-silent pages devoted to mood and murder, and this is at heart a drawn-out affair to allow Black Adam to earn his powers back with the audience. From what I could tell, you could fit this whole story into a one-shot easily, but the art by Doug Monkey and Christian Alami, as well as the coloring by Nathan Ehring, were really nice. Peter Tomasi's story is violent but lightweight, which are his trademarks. He's another one of these guys who can nail the sophisticated veneer of the 80s British invasion, but lacks the intellectualism to offer any real structure underneath. Back in Countdown, some alternate universe version of Superman broke the neck of some multiversal Martian Manhunter, and in our universe, the Manhunter helped fight some rogue Kryptonians in an action comics annual. Back to Salvation Run, the debut issue of the eponymous series involved supervillains captured by Task Force X being sent via boom tube to an undeveloped alien world dubbed Salvation. The villains could keep their weapons and costumes for survival, but everything else would have to be derived from the planet itself. As Waller's Lieutenant Rick Flagg would inform deportees, they had to take responsibility for themselves after blowing all their chances on Earth. No more trials, pardons, or provisions. The crooks could now just go screw off and form their own society. While Flag would have been content to dump the lot into the vacuum of space, Checkmate had supposedly made sure that Salvation was a peaceful world. However, it was actually a death trap of alien menaces that had been briefly suppressed by unseen forces with their own agenda. The Flash rogues had fought tooth and nail for a couple of weeks to ensure their survival. Finally, Heatwave, Mirror Master, Abracadabra, Weather Wizard, and Captain Cold were joined by a second wave. The Joker had been among those knocked out by the stresses of instant interdimensional travel, and the last to wake up. Most everyone else present had been captured after crashing the wedding of Black Canary to Green Arrow. But the Clown Prince of Crime had his scheduled departure expedited for creeping out his guards. He was joined by Kid Carnival, Tapeworm, Hammer, Killer Frost, Mr. Freeze, Girder, Black Spider, Phobia, Mr. Terrible, Hyena, Clayface, Sonar, Effigy, Tremor, Shrapnel, Sickle, Killer Croc, Mammoth, Simon, Shimmer, Rock, and the Cheetah. The Flash Rogues demanded to lead the collective in exchange for their guidance against the dangers of the planet. Hellish New World was by Bill Willingham, Sean Chen, and Weldon Wong. I wish there had been a line in there about Waller keeping the villains alive out of self-interest in the event of future need. You know, rogue heroes, alien invasion, etc. But her involvement with the Suicide Squad made that implication clear. The miniseries actually started out pretty decent in concept and execution, but would rapidly devolve from there. In Catwoman number 75, we see the titular star sent to the ironically dubbed Salvation Planet via Boom Tube, alongside fellow villains Deadshot, Bane, Lex Luthor, Blockbuster, and Kimo. Cheetah was waiting there, nursing a grudge against Catwoman and intent on lethal payback with no heroes around to stop her. Then Blockbuster punched Cheetah out cold. Catwoman was recruited by Lex Luthor for a perilous mission alongside Cheetah. Things go awry, and eventually Martian Manhunter appeared to warn Selina that things were not as they appeared. Jones was silenced by explosive fire from an assault helicopter, and Catwoman became lost in her increasingly incredulous misadventure. Finally, wielding a Green Lantern ring against a host of DC heroes, Catwoman was again visited by the sleuth from outer space. Selina had never left a computer room underneath the prison planet, slowly dying as the machine fed scenarios into her mind to keep her from acting to truly save herself. There were no external controls, so Luthor couldn't have saved her if he wanted to. The only way out was from inside, and Jones guided Catwoman through willing herself loose. In Salvation Run number 2, a third wave of extraterrestrial deportations brought Metallo, Tar Pit, Mean Streak of the New Extremists, Iron Cross from the Aryan Brigade, Hellhound, Scorpio, Ragdoll, Manticore of Jihad, and the body doubles to Salvation, as they worked as a team to scavenge some of the advanced technology to be found on the alien world. 
the second hellhound who'd bought the deceased's first gear, was viscerated by Alien, and his fellows kept him alive just long enough to feed other creatures on the world in a distraction play. Back at camp, Kid Carnival swore to skin the Joker alive if possible, to pay tribute to the clown prince of crime by surpassing his lunacy. Successive waves had brought Hugo Strange, Giganta, Julie, Mad Hatter, Silver Monkey, Warp, Man Bat, Shadow Thief, Two-Face, Sterling Silversmith, and more into the fold. Simon tried to win support for staying on Salvation and making babies around the clock with supervillainesses, which went over about as well as could be expected. The only surprise was that it was the Joker who bashed his head in with a rock, instead of a female. Well, that and Simon didn't even attempt to defend himself despite having vast powers, and that a wimp like the Joker would kill in such a savage fashion, and that this would instill fear in a throng of villains who could have easily killed the creep for his unpredictable homicidal rampage. This book was not well written. To further that argument, a final boom tube party was put together by the Suicide Squad. Present were Rick Flagg, Deadshot, Lex Luthor, Bane, Blockbuster, Catwoman, Kimmo, Bronze Tiger, Plastique, and Captain Boomerang. I realize that several of these people have already come twice thanks to the Catwoman tie-in. Just go with it. So Deadshot was betrayed and sent to Salvation, supposedly with two other squatters. Only five characters total were depicted as being sent, and none were squatters besides Deadshot. Finally, it's only Deadshot, and he's been cooperating for years, so why bundle him up for the boon tube? Because is why. Upon arrival, Lex Luthor got himself elected leader under a truth, justice, and the American way platform that probably sounded subversive in the scripter's mind, but just made the collected villains seem more like lemmings. It was a long week, three pages of jibber-jabber, including a second reference to boom-tubing folks into the vacuum of space. So yeah, it's the Joker and Luthor show with special guests gratuitous violence. I ran a blog whose mission statement included promoting awareness of Martian Manhunter villains. I'm so glad it was just getting started while this miniseries was being produced, or the entire Valman Lattery could have ended up in this meat grinder. Well, unless the disguised alien Atlas arriving this issue helped save his old support staff. Take This Roll and Shove It was by Bill Willingham, Sean Chen, and Walden Wong. In Salvation Run number 3, Vandal Savage's daughter Scandal liked to have killed Bolt over a bit of sexual harassment. Way to play down the lesbian stereotype, Lex Luthor did some more speechifying, having enlisted Thaddeus Savannah, General Mortis, and Anthony Ivo's aid in constructing a device to escape the Hell Planet. The Joker thought he was hogwash and rabble-roused to avoid contributing to any society, even one made up of supervillains. A giant monster attack, so the Joker told Super Gorilla Grodd to command Kimmo to fry the threat in a toxic bath. The Clown Prince then took all the credit. Mr. Terrible called a lumbering worker a blockhead, but when the Towering Hulk corrected Blockbuster, he backed down quick. Savannah thought that guy was dead, while Lex knew this was a different blockbuster than the one he'd created. Iron Cross yelled at some of the women to help with the building process, but they and other layabouts blew the Nazi off. Kid Carnival went so far as to threaten the Aryan Brigade member and got backhanded like the little boy that he is. A rumble started, so the Joker put a bullet through Iron Cross's head before ordering a previously scheduled mutiny. The chaos was short-lived, as Grodd recognized Luthor had already prepared for Joker's sudden but inevitable betrayal and laid a psychic whammy on everyone to lay down your weapons and cease fighting. You are too tired to fight any longer. The end result was a division into two camps, with Joker leading an exodus into new territory. Sivana criticized Luthor for this turn, but Lex had kept the irritating clown prince around specifically for the purpose of clearing out the worthless half of the camp and hoarding all their once-shared resources. Lex had even talked Iron Cross into instigating, thus creating an enemy for his camp to unite against. Blockbuster remained with Luthor's group, but snuck away for a while into the bush. The villains are beginning to crack under the pressure in this world, and I believe there is worse yet to come. Together, they may stand a chance. Divided, they'll be consumed. Is that such a terrible thing? We're not better off without them. 
or is leading these villains to your fate the same as murdering them? I pray that the decision does not become mine to make, for now my job is simply to observe. Pale blue caption boxes slowly turned green with a red X in the background. Blockbuster saw his long hair fade away and his morphing bare skin covered in a uniform. His secret transformation complete. A communication device was brought near to his mouth. J13, Martian Manager, Status Report. The situation here is out of control. All You Need Is Hate was by Matthew Sturges, Sean Chin, and Walden Wong. The change in writers didn't cause the slightest blip in variation this issue, probably because he's a regular collaborator with Willingham, and the whole plot was probably editorially mandated anyway. I can't stand it when a powerless, addle-brained, and generally useless character like the Joker gets treated like a king based solely on his popularity. When the clown tried to get folks to eat the monster Kimmo had contaminated, I wish Grodd would have forced him to follow through on it himself so he could choke on poison like a cockroach. Back for number four, Martian Manhunter attempted to contact Batman using a mechanical communicator device, but was trapped incommunicado on a world so far from any he knew that there was no semblance of a direction home. The villains were turning on each other on a planet that appeared engineered to be as deadly as possible. And hiding in the bushes, observing Jean's futile effort, Catwoman found this development very interesting. One week later, tensions within Lex Luthor's camp continued to rise. Lady Vic confronted Blockbuster with his charade, not recognizing this man as the one she knew very well. At least there were some support systems there. It was every man for himself at Joker's camp. As Griller Grodd shoved a bamboo rod in Bolt's hand so he could go hunt his own food if he wanted to eat. Grodd was eyeing Joker's chair when he was approached with a strategic alliance by Manjuro Mala and the Brain. When Mala tried to tout the ape's superiority to the humans, especially in a jungle setting, Grodd expressed repulsion at the comparison. You are an absurd science experiment. You are an abomination. It was Mala's turn to be offended, and he lashed out, but was no match for Grodd's brute strength. In desperation, Mala fired five slugs into Grodd's chest, only to be bludgeoned to death with the brain's containment vessel, Mala's one consolation being that he would die alongside his disembodied love. Weakened and wounded, the 600-pound Grodd was unable to prevent Joker's pallid, anorexic, dandy leg from kicking him off an inconveniently located mountain ledge. Vandal Savage had seen these downturns coming, and he convinced Lady Flash, Phobia, Nocturna, and the Cheetah to follow him into the wilderness. Whether anyone develops the technology to escape or not, we'll be alive. Savage had already determined that the planet was technologically based, and it located an isolated area wired for paradise. Life is But a Nightmare was by Matthew Sturges, Sean Chin, and Walden Wong. I stopped recapping this miniseries on the blog halfway through seven years ago for a number of reasons, not the least of which was because these posts corresponded with lengthy simultaneous synopses of other titles across numerous blogs at a time when audiences for that format were dwindling. The New 52 had also gone into effect, rendering the continuity these stories took place in moot. But most importantly, it's because I hated what a vicious and stupid effort this miniseries was, and I was particularly disgusted at the thinly motivated ape massacre in this issue. It was DC not only disowning its innocent past of evil-talking gorillas, but relishing and adulterating their very memory in as cruel and distasteful a way as possible. Its utter contempt for its own creators and their output inspired contempt in me for them. I wanted no more to do with it then, and now I just want to sort out my loose ends and draft copy for a podcast adaptation as part of a larger overview of this era. So, moving right along to issue number five, another week later on Hell Planet. Catwoman continued to keep her own company while spying on others. The Joker's camp, being the most shiftless, launched a pre-dawn raid on Luthor's supply silos. Although Joker's side was outnumbered, he managed to get the drop on Lex before Deadshot got the drop on him, leading to a Mexican standoff. Then Catwoman got caught on the scene 
Epstein and Lex managed to talk all parties into believing she was a spy for Waller's people on Earth. To save her own skin, she gave up Blockbuster's true identity and fled the scene. Despite remaining visible and tangible while trying to talk to the assembled villains and it being known that he was in possession of a communicator that supposedly reached back home, everyone piled on the exposed Martian Manhunter as hard as they were able while tripping over each other. John took a punch from Mammoth and a citrus-like fruit to the head. He retaliated by dive-bombing Giganta in the solar plexus and simultaneously battling 20-plus bad guys without breaking a sweat. He also blasted a cyborg villain thinker through the chest with laser vision and what may have been a fatality, but the dude was too obscure for me to be able to positively identify. I don't know who the dude is. Uh, the alien Atlas didn't run into trouble until Luthor gathered the Sonics in an initial counteroffensive and then a group of fire blasters, including Neutron, Heatwave, and Effigy, for the coup de grace. Sure, the valuable communicator was destroyed, a powerful potential ally was felled, and wrathful heroes surely would be even less inclined to rescue them and might actively retaliate it, but salvation run, y'all! Meanwhile, Vandal Savage revealed to Lady Flash that the women he lured away were intended to be his personal breeding stock and would have no real say in the matter because he only meant that this would be his paradise. Plenty of room for fights and two-page spreads, but not even a smidge for subtlety. Didn't we already go through this with Simon anyway? Also, it turned out the Hell Planet was created by Apocalypse as a training ground for parademons, and the trainees having the opportunity to take on all those supervillains would surely forge some of their greatest soldiers yet. Through a Glass Deadly was by Matthew Sturges, Joe Bennett, and Berlardino Why, yes, this is a new art team, five issues into a seven-part miniseries. On the right book with good embellishment, I have no major problem with Sean Chen, but his loose, perfunctory work here only made an ugly book uglier. Bennett makes the title look so much better, at times I almost forget what a stinky turd the script was. This book fits neatly in a pattern where some muckety-muck at DC... <laughs> talks a modest talent without a serious following into executing a terrible idea that tanks their career. Finally, issues six through seven. Two more weeks on Hell Planet. Despite the narrow, bloodless victory last issue, Martian Manhunter was now depicted as brutalized and dirty with missing teeth in a flame cage constructed and maintained this entire time by a heat wave who has gone from fear at being blamed for his death to anticipation for murdering him. Except when he joins Captain Cold in pointing out that killing Bart Allen was the worst mistake the rogues ever made and led to their dire straits. But ask again in five minutes. The Joker and Luthor camps also reunited because the Titans associates Thunder and Lightning tried to rescue Jean but got captured by Bane and imprisoned. Luthor and Joker fought over whether to kill the lot of them, and then they just plain fist fought, and then the parademons showed up. Vandal Savage continued to mentally abuse and sleep-deprive his would-be villainous harem, tricking each in turn to think that they were his sole partner in manipulating the others, with Phobia's literal fear-mongering amongst them going a long way toward explaining why they would be so malleable. Eventually, they bothered to talk amongst themselves, figure out a scam, and throw a beating. Luthor needed a safe place for Warp to teleport the device his team had constructed to return to Earth, and Catwoman guided them to the safe zone, where they halted the savaging of Vandal. Grodd reminded everyone why he was called Super Gorilla by surviving the attempt on his life and working with Luthor to telepathically force help with opening a portal from unwilling parties. Grodd wanted to kill Joker, of course, but then the parademon showed up again. Even this late in the game, previously unseen key players were being introduced without explanation. Supervillains were apparently killed in the ensuing battle, though some would turn up elsewhere in the future, also without an explanation. Thunder, Lightning, Warp, Neutron, Plasmus, and, um, Lady Robot Arms? Oh, but not Silver Swan. Not recognizing her would be embarrassing. Uh, were revealed to be powering the portal, 
and were all blown to pieces by a bomb left by Luthor before he was the last man through the portal. Weak and in great pain, Martian Manhunter was ignored by the parademons and left to die in the flame cage. Maintained by what exactly? Burning down the world and we gotta get out of this planet were by Matthew Sturges, Sean Chin, and Walden Wong. Again, but for the last time. And joined by Wayne Faucher. I can't stand the Joker and I can't believe he'd win a fight against Lex Luthor, but these issues were less terrible and less substantial than the rest. But why again didn't anybody kill the Joker after they got back home? On Monday, January 14th, 2008, Rich Johnston's then CBR gossip column, Lying in the Gutters, broke the news that Martian Manhunter would likely be killed in Final Crisis. Even though my Idlehead blog had only just begun a few months prior, I was fairly nonchalant about the news, feeling Jean was better dead than mangled by modern DC Comics editorial. Within days, 1970s Martian Manhunter artist Michael Netzer launched his popular internet campaign, Take Me But Don't Kill Jean, in hopes of saving the fictional life of the superhero he was most identified with, or at least getting to draw his send-off. I was very happy to see Netzer produce new digital art for the effort, but ultimately nothing came of it. Again, outside of wanting Netzer to get work, it felt for the best. After months of speculation, John Jones was murdered by Libra with the help of Effigy and Dr. Light at the request of the Human Flame on Wednesday, May the 28th, 2008. In Final Crisis Requiem Number 1, Superman said the final words at the funeral of John Jones, attended by Wonder Woman, Dr. Midnight, Metamorpho, Zatanna, Wildcat, Grace Choi, Black Lightning, Mr. Terrific, the Jason Rush incarnation of Firestorm, the Kinder Saunders Hawkgirl, Starman, Booster Gold, Plastic Man, the Bulleteer, Beast Boy, Vixen, the Tim Drake Robin, Nightwing, Green Lantern's Hal Jordan, John Stewart, Alan Scott, and Kyle Rayner, Green Arrow, Stargirl, the Arthur Joseph Curry Aquaman, inexplicably in the original's costume, Starfire, Batman, the Wally West Flash, Red Arrow, Geoforce, Cyclone, Hawkman, Red Tornado, Steel, Huntress, Black Canary, Damage, Our Man, Rick Tyler, Supergirl, Power Girl, Adam Strange, Ice, Gypsy, and others in the background. Here's that word again. Inexplicably reunited. It was never explained in the issue, but uh, we see John Jones lying on the floor in a villain's lair with over 300 pyrotrank darts designed by Dr. Savannah lodged all over his body, immolating and sedating him. Perpetrators Dr. Light and Effigy lowered the so-called firewall so that they could carry him to another room under orders from the supervillain apostle Libra. Though groggy, Jones began to regain consciousness en route. Libra wasted no time impaling him through the chest with his staff. The villains present in the room, Lex Luthor, Effigy, Dr. Savannah, Vandal Savage, Gorilla Grodd, Ocean Master, Dr. Light, and Talia al Ghul, were tormented by visions of a homicidal Justice League projected by Jones in the throes. The human flame had cowered behind an armchair over the illusory sight of the alien Atlas himself, though he was beneath notice as the Manhunter mainly focused on Libra. The Martian Marvel pulled himself up from the ground by the spear and began choking Libra, but Effigy and Dr. Light blasting with their energy powers. Burnt and exhausted, Jones felt the killing cut dealt his heart by Libra from a borrowed knife from Vandal Savage. Jean forced a final grin. At the moment of his death, various heroes were struck by a telepathic wave that notified them of his passing, including Superman, Batman, Dinah, but not her bedmate Ollie, Hal, and a Detroit gypsy. Of all people, it was Dick Grayson who first reached the body, dangling impaled through the chest by a post driven into a large model of the planet Mars. This was in New York City after being reported by a security guard at the Rose Center for Earth and Science. It was a level one omega in superhero parlance. The body was taken back to the headquarters of the Justice League of America, a team he was no longer a member of, and a hall of justice that was long denied him. Hal and Ollie kept watch over him. 
with the former asking, Look how they slaughtered our friend of all of us. I can't believe he's gone. Jordan couldn't bear to close Jean's eyes, but Ollie convinced him his soul was finally with his family. So Hal consented. Both were thirsty for rough justice. Later, the heroes touched by Jean's mind began sleep-authoring a sort of hardcover autobiography by proxy called Mars, a history by Jean Jones that recapped his 1998 through 2001 solo series, plus the JLA arc Trial by Fire and 52 World War III. Finally, Superman picked up Jean's pyramid ancestral home in the Gobi Desert. The Green Lanterns carted dozens of mourners, and Mars was the site of a destination funeral. The book was left on a translucent ruby coffin as the manor from Mars was left lying in state. Batman, unmasked, added a choco cookie. Goodbye, old friend. A spectral vision of Jean, reunited with his wife and child, closed the book. Caretakers of Mars was by Peter J. Damasi, Doug Monkey, Christian Alami, and Rodney Ramos. I didn't synopsize the story a decade ago because I knew I'd add extraneous details I easily cut today, and because I didn't want to express my anger at the book to mourning fans. Its excessively detailed yet frustratingly specific history of Jean Jones was mostly limited to stories edited by Tomasi that I already had a difficult relationship with, coupled with a bunch of more recent material that I deeply disliked. From Hal and Ollie calling Jean their favorite Martian, to the damn Chaco, the whole affair felt maddeningly superficial, obvious, and corny. At least this time, the significance of Gypsy in Jean's later life was acknowledged, and we got to see Jean put up some kind of fight against his murderers, instead of being put down like a whimpering dog in the core Final Crisis miniseries. The opening splash page of Jean in repose at the funeral was lovely, and while uneven, I enjoyed the art overall. In the special Faces of Evil Prometheus, we learned Jean had helped trap the type killer villain in a semi-vegetative state after the Megadon affair, but his murder had set the killer's mind free again. More deaths, superheroic and otherwise, followed in the miniseries Justice League Cry for Justice by James Robinson and Mauro Caschioli. It was a great-looking ugly book, so I wonder what happened to that guy. Aboard the JLA satellite, Green Lantern Hal Jordan took a stand against Superman, feeling that the League, as it currently stood, was failing to see justice done. How much more are we supposed to take? How many more of us will be taken with each crisis more of us fall. Now Bruce is gone and John. Typical grandstanding douchebaggery on Hal's part, given his less than cozy relationship with either recently deceased hero, and the way he added Martian Manhunter's name as an afterthought to Batman's. Wonder Woman felt this wasn't like Hal, which made it clear that she was still in post-crisis mode and didn't know Jordan all that well. Green Arrow knew him for the reactionary cowboy that he is, given that they were the same in that regard. Oliver Queen chose to ride out with Hal as a hard-traveling hero over sticking by his own wife, Black Canary. From there, the story branched out to events in the lives of Starman Michael Thomas, Congorilla, Two Adams, Ray Palmer and Ryan Choi, and many more. These heroes all found themselves in a position to seek out extreme justice, if not for the negative association with the 90s team, though not entirely inappropriate either. They ran around, not getting much accomplished, more people died, including Prometheus himself, and then most of them ended up forming the last proper Justice League of America before the end of the universe. In Blackest Night Number 0, Green Lantern Hal Jordan visited the unmarked grave of Bruce Wayne. He recalled an early day from his years in the Just League of America, when Martian Manhunter the rest played peacemaker between Batman and himself. Aquaman just observed, Another reason I prefer being underwater, less shouting. The Batman was now dead, but Barry Allen, the Flash Jordan knew best, had recently returned from beyond the veil. Joining Green Lantern in the Gotham City graveyard, Flash spoke of the breakdown in a city without its dark night, and was again confronted by changes that occurred during his lengthy absence. Jordan reflected on his own demise, while under the control of the evil Parallax entity, I died a sinner, you died a saint, everything changed when you disappeared, Barry. The world got more dangerous, our job more deadly, the 
Justice League wasn't untouchable anymore. Aquaman, killed after months in a mutated state toward the end of Aquaman's Sword of Atlantis. Jordan flashed back to simpler days, when he was much more cocky and optimistic, fighting Amazo alongside Martian Manhunter, Aquaman, Batman, Green Arrow, The Flash, The Atom, Wonder Woman, and Superman. Batman, reduced to a skeleton by Darkseid's Omega Beams during Final Night. John Jones, Martian Manhunter, he was murdered by Darkseid's follower. He's buried on Mars. The heart and soul of the Justice League is gone. Despite their differences, Green Lantern saw Batman as a friend. Flash hoped all their old buddies would return from the grave, just as Jordan and himself had done. The pair parted. The blackest night falls from the skies. Darkness grows as all light dies. We crave your hearts and your demise. By, By my, my black, black hand, hand, the dead shall In a newly created origin for Green Lantern number 43, it was revealed that William Hand grew up in a mortuary and from his earliest days was obsessed with death. Among his earliest hobbies was taxidermy, and he didn't let a fact like the family dog still temporarily being alive sway him from its aggressive pursuit. Coming into possession of an alien weapon, the necrofanatic assumed the costume identity the Black Hand. After years descending from prominent Green Lantern foe to wretched joke of the supervillain community, the Black Hand returned home to murder his family. Black Hand had been hearing death for some time and saw visions of the demises of many prominent DCU figures, including John Jones, the co-conspirator in his murder Dr. Light, Aquaman, Batman, and many more. Hand committed suicide with his energy weapon, prompting the arrival of the corrupted Guardian of the Universe, Scar. Serving at the pleasure of an unknown master, Scar vomited up a Black Lantern power ring. Black Hand was resurrected as the initial recruit of a new core representing death itself. Finally extinguish light. Blackest Night Prologue, Tale of the Black Lantern, was by Jeff Johns, Doug Monkey, and Christian Alami. Onward to Blackest Night Number 1, by Jeff Johns, Ebon Race, and Auclair Albert. Batman, Skull on Earth from the Grave by Black Hand. No one escapes death. That includes you. The dead will arise, and you are connected to them all. Coast City, Green Lantern's Hal Jordan, John Stewart, Kyle Rayner, and Guy Gardner perform for the crowds at a heretofore unmentioned memorial holiday for deceased superheroes. Smallville, Clark Kent, his ma, and Connor Kent, mourn pa. Pittsburgh, Professor Martin Stein, Jason Rush, and his girlfriend Gahana visited the grave of Ronnie Raymond. All the flowers were dying. San Francisco, the Teen Titans mourn their dead. Central City, the secret graveyard of supervillains was seen to by the rogues. Chicago, Ted Cord was missed. Metropolis, more of the same with the JSA. Amnesty Bay, two men named Arthur Curry once lived and died here. Mira and Tempest remembered them. Garth argued that Aquaman should have been buried in an Atlantean tomb, but the hero's mercurial widow disagreed. Aquaman, origin once more altered in an attempt to consolidate the Silver Age and post-crisis versions. Now Arthur only threatened to be left to die on Mercy Reef by superstitious Atlanteans. Instead, his mother returned him to his father's island lighthouse. Also, Atlanteans only wanted to cut out Garth's purple eyes, not kill him, so that his origin wasn't as obviously stolen by his mentor. Gotham City. Alfred discovered that Bruce Wayne's grave had been desecrated. Washington, 
DC, Green Lantern Hal Jordan and The Flash, Barry Allen, were at a morgue within Justice League of America headquarters designed to secure the remains of supervillains from tampering. Barry noted that in his lengthy absence, Guilty have gotten guiltier? And Batman, Aquaman, and Martian Manhunter are dead because of it? Who else died while I was gone? I need to know how. A power ring construct revealed a sea of heroes gone to the great beyond, among them Elongated Man, Sue Dibney, Vibe, Seal 2, others previously mentioned, and more besides. Roddy? Oh no. God, please no. Not them. Not Ralph and Sue too. How, Hal? Why? Alfred Pennyworth alerted the pair via hologram about Batman's grave robbing. St. Roche, Ray the Adam Palmer, tried to talk Hawkman into going with him to visit his deceased ex-wife's grave. In light of Gene Loring having murdered Sue Dibney by reason of insanity, Hawkman pointedly refused. Hawkgirl tried to convince him otherwise. Space Sector Zero. The Guardians of the Universe recognized that the War of Light had erupted, a conflict among several agencies which derived power from the primeval color spectrum tied to emotion. The corrupt Guardian Scar then attacked her fellows, ripping out the heart of one with her hands and teeth. <laughs> Black Lantern power rings rained down on Oa, penetrating the main battery and reanimating the corpses of the Green Lantern Corps' dead. The rings were then everywhere. Gotham City. A voice came from behind Green Lantern and the Flash at Batman's grave. You shouldn't be back. You should be dead. John? St. Roche. Just as Hawkgirl was finally admitting she loved Hawkman, a spear tore through her breast. A mace then battered the winged wonder. Black Lanterns, Ralph and Sue Dibney. The abhorrent, ghoulish remains of the lovers had been resurrected to kill the hawk. Sue had stabbed Kendra, while the former elongated man worked Katar over, physically and emotionally. They were never never as close close as us, were they, bun? The hawk's hearts were ripped from their chests. Black Hand was also present. You won't escape death this time. Carter Hall of Earth, Kendra Saunders of Earth. Sean Jones of Mars Kat Matsui of Gorgar Ronnie Raymond of Earth Al Brett of Earth Jenny Lindnate Arthur Curry Carter Hall, Kendra Saunders, Ted Gord, Marani Desai, Paco Ramon, Hank Haywood, David Knight, Erwin Bowen, Wesley Dodds, Charles McNighter, Terry Sloan, Ten years ago, a crashing wave of light erupted across the DC Universe. A multicolored spectrum of energy bathed the cosmos in a war of light. Rage clashed against passion. Hope sought to stifle fear. Greed to choke out compassion. And in the middle of it all, the will to keep going and fight for all. Now this war has come to the surface of our planet. Because while the light fights, the darkness rises.
Hero, villain, friend, foe, family. Across the universe, the dead have risen, and it's going to take every available podcaster to fight back. In 2016, we covered the dawn of the Justice League with Justice League Year One. In 2017, we soaked in the seminal justice. Last year, we threw it back to the Silver Age. But this year's JLMA podcast event covers an event that knows not the boundaries of death itself. JLMA covers Blackest Night in celebration of the event's 10-year anniversary. Our coverage begins on April 30th with the podcast of OA and proceeds through the entire month of May with Chris and Reggie's Cosmic Treadmill, The Idolhead of Diablo, The Fire and Water Podcast, Head Speaks, Coffee and Comics Podcast, Longbox Crusade, Waiting for Doom, Task Force X, The Starman Manhunter Adventure Hour, The Dr. DC Podcast, The Birds of Prey Podcast, Justice's First Dawn, and ends with the Lantern Cast. So join us this May, because across the DC Universe, the dead have risen. Where will you be? Green Lantern number 44, Space Sector 2814, Mars, the tomb of the Martian Manhunter. An electrical storm rocked the red soil outside Jean Jones' pyramid. Inside, the Chaco sandwich cookie set on Jean's coffin after his funeral was knocked to the floor, the impact crumbling it. A black lantern ring burst into the structure, penetrated the Manhunter's coffin, and set itself on his right finger. An oily black substance covered the Martian Manhunter's body, becoming a costume. Black Lantern John Jones then smashed his way out of his translucent coffin. In Gotham City, Alfred Pennyworth had called Green Lantern Hal Jordan and the Flash, Barry Allen, to investigate the robbing of Batman's skull from Bruce Wayne's grave. Flash found some kind of black residue, and it's coagulating like blood. A voice could be heard within the hero's mind. How, Barry? A disturbed Flash uttered, Malacandra? The voice came again, verbally and from behind. John, you're here. Ring. Identify. Scanning. While Green Lantern's ring checked out the former Manhunter from Mars, Black Lantern John Jones' own power ring determined Jordan was emotionally dominated by Will and the Flash by Hope. Scanning complete. John Jones, a.k.a. Martian Manhunter, founding member of the Justice League of America, last survivor of the Green Martian race. Vital signs. Negative. I realize my appearance may be disturbing, but if this form, the form I met humanity halfway with, is less discomforting. Before Jones could fully shapeshift into the false visage of his old self, Green Lantern fired on his swiftly immaterial and invisible form. Jordan defended his action before a startled flash. You heard, John. He's not asking for milk and cookies. The Black Lantern from Mars knocked Flash off his feet and began choking Jordan. Don't worry, Hal. You were my friends. I've come back to help you. Lifting Green Lantern into the air by his neck, John Jones fired laser vision at the ground covered by the Scarlet Speedster. Barry, you had your chance to embrace the Speed Force, to become part of Nirvana, but you ran away from it. 
How would it make you feel to leave Iris and Wally behind again? Images filled the Flash's mind, instilling fear, another emotion to be savored. And you how? After everything you did, if you died at the right time, you would have gone straight to hell. Despite Jones's taunts, Jordan's emotional spectrum would not expand beyond will. But you no longer subject yourself to guilt or anger over Parallax, do you? Your heart is full of willpower again. Let me see. The Flash ran up a collapsed tombstone ramp and snatched Green Lantern from Jones's grasp. But Jordan was still shaken from the mental intrusion and barely reacted in time to save them from freefall. Recognizing John Jones as the bearer of a previously unidentified power ring type, Green Lantern tried to contact some of his fellow corpsmen to no avail. Sheltered in a fire station, the heroes considered the probability that Jones wasn't the only new Black Lantern ring bearer and how to exploit his greatest weakness. The building began to shake. John's not knocking on the door. Black Lantern John Jones raised the structure. I was powerful as Superman. Why does everyone forget that? On planet Oa, inside the citadel of the Guardians of the Universe, their adulterated sister Scar had taken control. Scar felt that all previous Guardian initiatives had failed to bring order to the universe, and so had thrown her loyalty behind the new Black Lantern Corps. Scar had begun hearing a commanding voice as her body died from the poisonous burn of the Anti-Monitor, making her realize only the absence of emotion could bring ultimate peace. The Black Lanterns are collecting hearts full of splintered light, and soon it will be his turn to rise. Now, you will need to rest for what's to come. Back to sleep, fellow guardian. Back on Earth, a Green Lantern ring construct had saved everyone so far, but an invisible manhunter was to be feared. Flash had a plan, but also considered, Maybe we could reach John. We could trigger something into him so he can fight back. He's the strongest telepath on the planet. What was his state of mind when he died? Was he still using his human guys out of Denver? Detective John Jones, I think so. The truth is, I didn't see much of John in the end. He left the league. He distanced himself. He felt more alien. Alien? John was an alien. He was alienated. The Flash was pained by another telepathic invasion. How was the one who never flinched at the sight of a Martian? But you understood me, Barry, and I want you to understand me now. You can't outrun death, not when it's me. The Flash launched into a two-pronged attack, physical and verbal. I know what you in there, John. Somewhere deep down. Remember? We used to talk shop. Cases. You were fascinated by what you never had on Mars. Law. Justice. Weekly, Green Lantern fended off the Flash's battery after the Scarlet Speedster had been made to see Jordan as the Black Lantern. The evil Jean Jones then wrapped a tentacle around Jordan's neck and flung him through the Gotham night sky toward an unanswered bat signal. Justice for who? For my wife? Myself? The man who orchestrated my murder still walks the streets. Half the league you knew is gone. Justice is dead, Barry. Black Lantern John Jones then batted the Flash into a pool of chemical sludge. Meanwhile, in Space Sector 1313, Green Lantern John Stewart was faced with the prospect of a Black Lantern planet. Only the Good Die Young was by Jeff Johns and Doug Monkey with Christian Alami, Tom Wynn, and Rodney Ramos. I liked Monkey when he was working on JLA and Superman titles, but his coarse combination of influences like Jeff Darrow and Simon Bisley was at odds with the clean-cut superheroes that he was tasked with portraying. Christian Alami also had a strong biz influence when he started in comics as a penciler, but always more refined and contained thanks to the additional influences of people like Brian Boland and David Roach. When Alami began inking Monkey, the combination reinvigorated his work and brought him back as a top artist at DC. 
perhaps thanks to past Green Lantern artist Ethan Van Skyver also having grown by leaps and bounds after adopting a more Bolin-type look, Monkey and Alami were tapped to replace the outgoing Iban Race and interim artist Philip Tan on the title. The Blackest Night tie-ins were their debut, and they were a perfect match for the material. The Alami-inked pages recalled the safety of the Silver Age, while Monkey's past favorite inker, Tom Wynn, helped shift his pages more toward the unnerving horror and violence of their Kevin O'Neill influence. Given that the entire Blackest Night concept owed a debt to a short story by Alan Moore and O'Neill, that visual nod brought the story full circle. Given his history with Martian Manhunter on JLA and one-offs like the Final Crisis Requiem special, Monkey was also uniquely suited to a Black Lantern Jones spotlight. As an added Easter egg, Monkey returned to his visual cue from Requiem of having characters who are telepathically interacting with Jean develop an asymmetrical green strip on their faces by now zombifying that strip under the Black Lantern's influence. Back in 2009, folks asked me about my feelings regarding the Manhunter from Mars becoming an evil, hateful, undead killing machine. It seemed to come as a surprise that I didn't mind at all. For starters, zombies are my favorite and most feared monster in the whole world. The Blackest Night variety favor a cross between the seriousness of Romero and cruel taunt scheming of Raimi, two of my best loved varieties, as opposed to the also enjoyable Jackson O'Bannon sort from Marvel Zombies. The suit designed by Ethan Van Skyver is only somewhat surprisingly similar to some redesigns I attempted back in the day for the and Atlas, and the ghostly pallor is much easier to accessorize for. The much-loved folded collar and pie symbol are back, the dopey wrist gauntlets join them, but only the Luke Cage Hero for Hire headband really looks out of place. It's a sharp design, and Manhunter has rarely been so prominent in a crossover, even if he is the bad guy. On that note, it's become more and more clear that this guy isn't John Jones, so any shenanigans he gets up to don't count in the same way as, say, Hal Jordan's Parallax or the latest Superman meltdown. This is a reanimated corpse controlled by an outside power, not even that regressive evil gene nonsense from Trial by Fire, which still ended with John blasting his ancestor evil self furnace to oblivion. If there's no soul, there's no strike. Finally, on to Blackest Night number two, Ivy Town. Ray the Adam Palmer tried to call Hawkman back about going with him to visit his deceased ex-wife Jean Loring's grave. The now undead winged wonder invited him over. Gotham City. Commissioner Gordon and his daughter Barbara were surprised by Green Lantern Hal Jordan being thrown into the bat signal. Amnesty Bay. Mira decided that if it was for the best, Tempest could exhume Aquaman's body and entomb it under the sea. A group of Atlantean soldiers were along for the task, but the grave was already dug out. Black Lantern Arthur Curry. Yes, your king. Your king who would rather be buried in the mud next to his human father than his own people. Your king who was hunted as a child because of his ties to the surface world. Your king who returned when you begged him to rebuild Atlantis and who, after giving his blood to do it, was hunted again. Now it's your king's turn to hunt. Gotham City. The spectral dead man lay in a fetal position near his grave as the Black Lantern Oath echoed all around him. Boston Brand knew he was better off dead, but the Black Lantern Corps would not let his skeletal remains lie. There is just enough flesh left to make a corpseman of him yet. Washington, D.C. Hank and Don Hall were called by the Black Lantern Power Rings.
but Dove remained at peace, so only Hawk answered. Amnesty Bay. The undead Aquaman tormented Mirror with the memory of their deceased son and couldn't be killed by a trident through his chest. Tempest was attacked by Black Lantern Tula and Black Lantern Dolphin. The Atlanteans were eaten by zombie sharks at Aquaman's command. Gotham City. Zatanna. Blue Devil, Phantom Stranger, and Spectre investigated Boston Dead Man Brand's open grave. They were met by the former pariah turned Black Lantern Kel Mosa. Worlds have died. Worlds will rise. Black Hand saw turning the Spectre's living dead human host into Black Lantern Crispus Allen. Gotham City. Black Lantern Jean Jones pursued the Flash, Laser Vision ablaze. Amnesty Bay. Black Lantern Tula regenerated her head after a less than devastating attack, then took Tempest's heart for good. Mira fled. Black Lantern John Jones. Your thoughts are moving faster, Barry. You're trying to prevent me from manipulating them again. Can't run from me. The Flash had been mixing flammable chemicals for Green Lantern to ignite. Barry contained the Inferno. Sorry, John. Hal observed. Fire! It was John's kryptonite! Was being the operative word. When the fire dies down, I want to recover John's remains and take him back to Mars. He deserves better than being desecrated like this. Martian Manhunter was heart of Justice League. Heart, Barry? I have no heart. I gave my heart to the League. Black Lantern John Jones emerged from the smoke unscathed and no longer alone. Black Lantern Ralph Dibney. We all did, John. And I'd say it's your turn to return the favor, fellas. Black Lantern Sue Dibney. He'll help them, won't we, Ralph? Black Lantern Ronnie Raymond. Radical! Black Lanterns Carter Hall and Kendra Saunders brought up the rear. Besides the solid race cover featuring Hal Jordan surrounded by Black Hand and his lanterns, which was also used on some striking monochrome reprints, was a spooky painted variant by Marco Cascioli of Cry for Justice fame. It featured a morbid take on the 60s Aquaman cartoon, Black Lantern Arthur Curry riding a ossified giant seahorse surrounded by the undead of the sea. Really, really cool. The interior are again by Jeff Johns and Iban Race with Aclair Albert and Julio Ferreira. Since this podcast crossover is still in the early going rather than risk spoilers, I'm not going to go in depth on my feelings about the overall project. Since this episode is already pretty involved, I actually have two follow-up episodes in mind, one for The Human Flame and Final Crisis, and another looking at the rest of this miniseries and its follow-up. However, the good thing about having had a blog at the time is that I can just dig up posts about my feelings from that period which I already partially quoted earlier when discussing the Black Lantern Martian Manhunter design. The thing about Blackest Night is that it's pretty cool, and it's written by a justifiable fan favorite Jeff Johns. Aside from editorial clutter messes like Infinite Crisis, Johns is quite reliable, and more to the point, fairly predictable. Too many big names have already died in this crossover, and as Johns is a gent about servicing the wants of fandom, you just know a bunch of these guys will return to life and newfound glory before all this is said and done. It is possible, though longish odds and too soon by my measure, that a resurrected Martian Manhunter may soon be returned to us. This gets to one of my main purposes for constructing the old Rock of the JLA site. Never mind this blog, I'll have Diablo. Building a better Jean Jones. Fans and creators alike, myself included, were largely ignorant about the character's origins, history, Rose Gallery, and so forth in 1999. I always intended to change that, and continue to strive towards a richer and more informed approach to the character. I see the Frankenstein's monster above as the end of old bad habits regarding the Martian Marvel, and a hope for an improved to come. We all now have access to cheap reprints of Martian Manor's first 15 years of publishing through his solo strip and Just League of America. I've tried to cover most of the years between
between Showcase Presents and the modern interpretation of the hero that began in 1987 with Just League International. I've also tried to shine a light on hidden gems to the present, and will endeavor to continue, as there is so much more to offer. The point being, to anyone offended by Black Lantern Martian Manhunter, give consideration to where to go from here, and how to ensure we never endure a disposable John Jones again. Your ego betrays you. Will you not listen to reason? This won't end well for you. Mrs. from the Robot Brain teleported from across social media. At Facebook, Scott Rowland, DeBeche, Derek William Crabb, Keith G. Baker, Michael Wagner. On Twitter, Ali Bats, Andrew at Mighty Evil Doom, Dr. Ange, Anthony Joseph Loves Alterna Comics, Badat Shapirak, Between the Pages, Bill Bear, Blood and Black Rum, Bob Buster, Brian Mulvey, Cash Flag, Chris and Reggie's Cosmic Treadmill, Coffee and Comics, Comic Reflections, Comics Couplets, E Squared It, Ed Moore Jr. at Miskatonic Until Productions, El Romero Mero, Van Poles Podcast, Genos, Paul Hicks, History of Comics on Film, ITG Graham, Jeffrey Brown, Jenna Risman, Jerry Whitworth, Justice First Dawn, Justice Trek, The Podcast, Keith G. Baker, Kyle Benning Likes Comic, Lime Link, Low 456, Luke Dobb, Matthew Chad, Nerdfix Strangers, Odell Abner Dracula, Pop Culture Palace, Professor Frenzy, Rad Adventures Podcasting Network, Radio and Podcast, Hashtag Share a Show, Randy Andrews, Randy Caldwell, Resurrections, a Warlock and Thanos podcast, Richard Field, Scott X, Secret Wars and Beyond podcast, Seth Briz, Slangword Resists, and Slangword Scott, Talk Nerdy to Me, Terrence Castingway, Tommy F. Oler, Trekker Talk, Warlord Worlds, Willie Yarbrough, and Xenozoic Files. Paul Hicks wrote, JLA Paradise Lost is the miniseries that no one remembers or ever mentions. Good episode as always. Saul Bishop wrote, that was a good one. Nice setup for Day of Judgment 2. I think I'm one of only about five people that really like Hal Jordan as the Spectre. And Hicks replied, there were four others. Podcast listeners should feel free to leave a comment on one of our blogs, either the Umbrella Rolled Spine Podcasts or the specific Idle Head of Diablo blog. Both are available quite easily through Google searches. You can also shoot me a tweet at Commander Blanks. That's B-L-A-N-X. Thank you for listening.